It's a jackalope carnival. Jack, jack, jackalope. Jackalope carnival. Hi, and welcome to Jackalope Carnival, where we look at human beliefs through myth, history, paranormal, and the downright odd. I'm Becca. And I'm Eric. And we'll be your hosts through this sideshow of stories. Have you ever felt yourself floating outside of your body, been drifting off to sleep, and maybe have seen yourself from above? Have you ever seen something in the next room, but you know that you hadn't been in that room yet? If so, you may have had a quick flash of what's known as an OBE or an out-of-body experience, and you're not alone. Um, According to an article in Medical News Today, 10% of the population reports to have had one. Um, And I'm assuming that's the population in America because it wasn't specific. I myself have had something that may have been an out-of-body experience. Um, It could have been a dream. I was 12 years old and I was having a nightmare and I wanted to get up and tell my mom because I was scared. And I remember leaving my bed and looking back and seeing myself on my bed and then going to my mom's door and like slow motion, trying to knock on the door and I couldn't. And then I heard somebody coming up the stairs and suddenly I was back in my bed. So was it a dream? Uh, Could have been, I don't really know, but this in general could be um, called an out-of-body experience. Um, So what is this out-of-body experience exactly? Well, most sources talk about it as seeing your own body from the outside. It's pretty simple. This is why it sometimes gets brought up when we're talking about doppelgangers or your double. You ever see a doppelganger of yourself, Eric? Sometimes when I'm driving, I see the exact same (laughs) color and make of my car, and it kind Uh of feels like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, who's driving my car? And then I'm like, I am. (gasps) Yeah, yeah, so that would be that would like be that, right? you know like your your car as you're having an out of car experience. <laughs> right. Although, you know what's you know what's actually really funny is that people see people who look like me, who apparently aren't me all the time. I don't, but like I've had I would say at least like a couple times a year, people friends of mine or acquaintances or students will walk and be like. I totally saw you at blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I totally was not there. So I don't know if it's just that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a bald white guy. So there's probably plenty of me of, you know, my demographic I'm saying, but maybe not. Maybe there's doppelgangers, right? Maybe there's just a lot of doppelgangers of you. That could very well be. What does, what does Um, that mean in German? I mean, obviously doppel is double, but what's, you know what the ganger part is? I think it means double walker. That's a little creepy actually. Yeah. Actually, it sounds like zombies now that we think of like zombies. Yeah. Now it's even creepier. Great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe we should do an episode on doppelgangers in the future. Why not? If you all want to hear an episode about doppelgangers, go ahead and find us on Instagram at Jackalope Carnival and let us know. Or you can find us on our website at jackalopecarnival.com. So this out-of-body experience, it could be related to doppelgangers It could be related to, we've also heard the same thing with astral projection. We've heard something similar with near-death experiences. But 
with an out-of-body experience, say you're aware that you're sitting in a chair and then you realize that while you know you're in a chair, you're also outside of your body watching yourself in that chair. What do you do next? Well, that's up to you, but it's also up for some debate. So in general, out-of-body experiences, like I said, they've been involuntary, but there are books and there are people who have reported being able to create this experience at will. Um, There's books that tell you how to do this if you'd like to. In general, out-of-body experiences have been involuntary, but there are some people who report that after they had their first involuntary accidental OBE, out-of-body experience, that they can do it again. And they can train themselves to do this. There's books that tell you how to do this. And I believe Eric's going to do a little bit of explaining of that, aren't you? Well, I'm going to specifically talk about one of the germinal books about out-of-body experiences. You know, actually, we've had at least three whole conversations about this before you know recording this episode. And I have never told you about mine, did I? No. So this might be the time. <laughs> well, I was taking class on Raja Yoga in uh, undergrad for my religion degree. And I took all kinds of wonderful classes like that, actually. And it was both a theory and practice class, which meant that we had normal readings and papers and all that kind of thing. But then it had a lab and the lab met at like, I don't know, seven o'clock in the morning or something that was seemed completely unreasonable to college students. And it was held in one of those rooms that are like like not the typical academic building. I don't know why we, they stuck us in there, but they did. And we would sit there and we would not only do hatha yoga, like the poses, but we'd also do um, breath work, pranayam. We would do meditation. We would do yoga nidra. You know, some of the more esoteric stuff as well. We also had homework that was part of the lab, too. And so I was doing a lot of meditation and yoga that semester. And one time when I was doing, I had, again, I was probably meditating for quite a bit a day and built up some time sitting. As I was meditating, I started getting this really strange feeling. Like my body was completely relaxed. And then I, it's really hard to explain. But when I went to my, my teacher my professor, and I told her, you know, what had happened. She explained to me that in Raja Yoga, there's this belief about kosha, which are sheath. Their human being isn't just a body or a soul, but rather it's sort of like, like a Russian nesting doll, where you have many different layers that make up your person. And she was explaining that I was a part of my inner layers were slipping out of my outer layers. Um, no, that sounds messy. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me. I was unsettled. I think that's that's like a commonality, isn't it? Like when people first it, it really around. is. And and that's what, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about that because there are like I said, they started out involuntary, but one of the conditions that they can occur in is meditation. Um, but other conditions that they can occur in, some of them are medical conditions. So Ear infections, apparently out-of-body experience has been reported more commonly with people who have ear infections, which is really strange because I do often have ear infections, hey, me too. especially when I was 12. So perhaps that's what happened. But also they can happen when you have a stroke. They can happen when epilepsy, drug abuse, or just general head trauma. And they're not only, again, you can 
eventually have one and then build on that. Or you can um, mix all those things together and it just be one weekend at Fells Point. Yeah, sounds great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and there's like, so when did people start talking about out-of-body experience? Well, probably in different forms throughout the millennia. And, and in general, if you're going to read books about that, they talk about that. But I think it was probably during the 1800s that the idea of astral projection was popularized. And astral projection is similar, but it's more deliberate. The belief system that we've talked about here before called theosophy. I just like to think that all roads lead to Madame Blavatsky. (laughs) Here we are. I don't know. I don't know what the band name is, but the song is All Roads Lead to Madame Blavatsky. Yep. This is a little different because in theosophy, they believe that the consciousness and the body separation was that she could leave her body, Madame Blavatsky, and not just travel earthly planes, but travel astral planes and go through the astral realm, which is interesting because out-of-body experiences have had a lot of scientific testing. You can't really do that with astral projection, astral planes, because as far as I know, we don't have a control group. You know, we don't know what an astral (laughs) plane looks like, so you can't really test it. And before I go on a little more, I want to tell you about some of the testing that has been done because it's pretty interesting. Out-of-body experiences have had many different kinds of research done on them. I'm talking different disciplines, military studies, which Eric and I are going to talk about, scientific studies, parapsychology. And one such experiment I found that was published in 2007 is done by a scientist and a medical doctor named Dr. Henrik Erson. And Henrik is a cognitive neuroscientist. And according to his bio, he's interested in how we come to sense that we own our own body. So that's an interesting question. Um, When we think about being embodied, think about that. Is this question, are we a mind and spirit in a body? Are we a mind kind of moving around this meat suit? Is all of this one? Are we Um, a mind? are we or the age old question that's been and asked since antiquity right or or 2008 really depending on how old you are um is posited by Brandon Flowers of the Killer are we human or are we dancer <laughs> no. <laughs> no i'm a little bit of both <laughs> i actually really like the killer's first album and that song drives me insane i love it so he says <laughs> But away from Brandon Flowers, Heinrich Erson says that he hypothesizes that the illusion is caused or the illusion of -of out-of-body experience is caused by first-person visual perspective in combination with the correlated visual and tactile information of the body. So he basically says that he can recreate out-of-body experiences by having people have I think it would be much easier now that we have VR headsets, but he would have cameras on them where people could see their own backs. Through doing this neuroscientific clinical basis, he was able to feel like they were having out-of-body experiences. And so there's a lot of interesting experiments. I just picked this one because I thought it was interesting uh, that talk about this and whether you can do it on your own or whether this is just random. So Eric, Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about this ability to control out-of-body experiences. Yeah, there's uh well actually if you get on 
the internet, there's all kinds of people who claim to be able to tell you to do that. One of the places, a lot. You are not wrong. <laughs> one of the places uh, that was deeply involved with this in the 1970s and even a bit in the 80s, but not as much anymore. But they're still around. Is called the Monroe Institute. And not only do they still exist in Virginia as a brick and mortar business, but they also have a YouTube channel. So if you're into that kind of thing, you can drift on over there and check out some of their videos. And it was started by a fellow by the name of Robert Monroe. And I have gotten to know Robert Monroe pretty darn good this past month. I feel like I feel like I kind of know the guy because I not only did I read his book, I actually bought this book last year. Uh, the book is called Journeys Out of the Body. I don't know. Who knows why I do anything I do? But one day, I, I actually can vividly remember this. I literally was like, I want to learn to actually project. <laughs> and I can't possibly tell you the series of things that led me to decide to want to do that. I was visiting my grandmother at the time in Hampton, Virginia, uh. and I... I, if it was in 2020, it might have been because we were all stuck inside. That sounds like a fun time. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Actually, no, I take it back. It wasn't 2020. It was actually 2019. Uh, so it wasn't mm-hmm. last year or even two years ago. Sorry, I have the uh, I'm having the uh, the plague year time slip thing where I can't really tell time anymore. But no, this was uh, I was in my at my grandmother's house and I decided I needed to learn to actually project. So I looked up. What was kind of the earliest book that was dealing with this kind of thing? And that's when I bumped into Robert Monroe's book, uh, Journeys Out of the Body. And I kind of thumbed through it at the time, but I was a little busy at that period of my life. Uh, and it got you know swept to the side. And then when Becca and I were talking about what are we going to talk about for this season, I would return to the idea of out-of-body experiences. So I've been reading and rereading this book. I find it incredibly fascinating. And then I tucked into an hour and a half long interview with Robert Monroe, the man uh, that I found online. And... After doing all that, after hanging out with this book for like the better part of a month and then hanging out with interviews that lasted over an hour, I kind of feel like I know the guy. That being said, this is a man in whom there is no guile. The The thing that strikes me about him when I'm listening to his interview or even reading his uh, his writing is he's a very down earth dude. He really isn't the type of fella who's into flights of fancy. He is, I'd say, more innovative than the average person. Uh, he's more open to doing new things. Uh, he was into gliders in the 1970s when people weren't normally doing that kind of thing. He got into audio learning, which we're going to talk about in a second. He was interested in new technologies as a businessman. So he wasn't he wasn't the type of person who was afraid of new technologies or, or learning new things, but he also wasn't the type of fella who was what we would kind of like dismiss as being ungrounded or maybe a little flighty. He actually comes off as kind of like your your cool uncle, your your cool granduncle at Thanksgiving, you know. And he wrote this book after years of personal investigation. And then also he ended up using his own money to start a business or pointing his existent business into exploring out-of-body experiences. And like I said, he passed away, he died, but the business is still going. But 
so backtracking here, let me tell a little bit of his story because the story is pretty interesting. And then we'll get into his book. Robert Monroe was a businessman. He was from Kentucky in the United States. He was born on October 30th, 1915. That makes him just a couple of months older than my dad. He started out as a, a radio broadcast executive. He owned a couple of radio stations in the 1950s. But as television was taking over from radio, and by the 1950s that was already happening, he decided to pivot into television. But that really didn't he, – he thought that was just a little too linear, and he wanted to look at a little more cutting-edge technologies. And so he was investigating sleep learning. In the 1950s and 60s – I can even remember doing this in the 1980s or at least trying this. There was this idea that perhaps you could still learn things, that your brain was still learning while you were sleeping. I tried it in the 90s. I think that um, a, a college roommate and I tried – hypnotism on ourselves one night. Did it work? It had unfortunate consequences that someone was trying to get in the building and they needed help and we didn't hear them. So oh, no. uh, <laughs> you were in no? a very deep I mean, or yes. I mean, it wasn't anyway, it wasn't good for the situation you weren't in. It was an unfortunate incident. Yeah, I'll say. I mean, but okay, but you actually did manage to, to find another state of consciousness, it sounded like. This is true. We did, but yeah. so much so that we didn't hear someone call for help. This is a little bit different. What they would do is- It got they, dark, Eric. It just got really dark. <laughs> and quiet. So in the 19, I guess in the 1950s, I didn't realize it had gone back this far, but they had, there was a, a thought that you could still learn things while you were asleep. And so people were selling recordings that you could play while you were sleeping. And this is what he kind of pivoted or was trying to pivot into. I remember my mom thinking this and she was trying to use record. She, she made me make recordings of times tables and play them while I was trying to sleep. <laughs> I was also imagining that with like, you know, the 50s movie voices. Well, I'm not old enough for it to be the 50s, but like this is this is the 80s. Think Stranger Things, <laughs> Stranger Things. But I, I would not want recordings of Stranger Things playing at night when, when I was trying to sleep. Let's think of the general style vibe more than anything else, because you know, okay, they got, they got the you were you were, right. you were doing your times tables. Did it help? No, not at all. I have a learning difference when it comes to math. There's no amount of tape recording that's going to overcome that. <laughs> but anyway. They're, they're, we're still working on that one, as a matter of fact. Uh, math learning differences, and we're not as far along as we are with language-based ones. And we can still improve with our language-based ones. But I digress. That's neither here nor there. All we need to know is, is that, no, I did not learn my times tables that way. And I'm still a little shaky on my eights. But anyway, moving along. That's neither here nor there. Robert Monroe was re was into this this stuff on the ground floor. He was trying to record things for people to learn on tape recordings. <sighs> really, this kind of learning has never been shown to reliably work in laboratory settings. He was also working with something else. And this is kind of what the Monroe Institute still does. And he was experimenting with what different sound frequencies can do to consciousness. So he was, for example trying to find particular tones that would help people to relax or fall asleep. Like waterfalls or just the audio 
the artificial audio equivalent of a waterfall or a rainy night. Um, a, it kind of like that, but th- that's that's more cognitive. Like, oh, it's relaxing. I'm listening to a waterfall. This mm-hmm. is more. This is much more controlled. Like this frequency of sound will induce your brain waves to change and do this. So is it like hidden messages and things almost? I don't think that it's hidden. It's it's quite explicit, right? Like he's selling mm-hmm. these tapes. Like you can fall asleep. Yeah, not like, you know, broadcast them over the Kmart and watch everyone fall down. Although I don't know what that would be good for, really. But (laughs) they're still doing this kind of thing, actually. So the Monroe Institute is all about, like, you know, you can buy these tapes that have these recordings of sounds that will change brain frequencies. You know, I I think I'm getting that right, at least. And if I'm not, go over to their website and check out what they're saying. Uh, Maybe they'll say it better than I am. But that was my takeaway from it, just investigating it. Yeah, one podcast, and maybe we'll do one on subliminal messages. I will tell you all my experience with being on the receiving end of subliminal messaging. <laughs> maybe you are right now. Shake your <laughs> maybe everyone is. <laughs> but anyhow, this is this is not a tangent. This is actually leading to where we're going. It was this recording that led him to relax and fall asleep that would in his mind at least lead to his first out-of-body experience so he was using these uh, sound frequencies to fall asleep and then he said he felt a particular vibration in his body this is from an interview he gave and he said that he eventually learned how to change and channel and control the frequency but the frequency would come and then he would that would end up leading to an out of body experience and his first out of body experience is really funny the way he describes it he says that he felt this funny vibration like he was vibrating and then suddenly there was a fountain on the floor he was still in the same room it was kind of dark trying to go to sleep but suddenly there was a fountain on the floor and he looks over at the fountain like who put a fountain in my bedroom and that's when he realized it's not a fountain it's the chandelier and he's upside down. He is. He's His back is against the ceiling. And he looks down and he sees his wife. And then he's like, am I dreaming? Like, this isn't normal. And then he sees a man who's beside his wife. And he's like, what kind of dream am I having? You know, what kind of improper dream am I having? And so in, he uses the verb to swim. He swims down uh, to basically, I guess, see who this interloper is in his bed and he gets the shock of his life when of course it's him and it's he's looking at himself and that's it snap right back into the body so he he's not sure at this point whether or not he's had like a very peculiar but vivid dream or whether something else is going on so he goes to his doctor now can you imagine a grown man in the 1950s going to their doctor and trying to explain this and the doctor apparently gave him a, a, a physical and was like, I can't see anything wrong with you. I have no idea what you're talking about. And so he's talking to some other people about what's going on. And eventually, I don't know how much longer, maybe years for all I know, but he does bump into an acquaintance who does have an answer for him. And he says, this sounds not unlike what yogis talk about. And he's kind okay. Of, so back to that yeah. same thing that you had. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he's like, of course, what's a yogi? Because again, Yogi right. Bear. That's what he was thinking hey, at boo-boo. this time. Yogi right. Bear. This is not an average picnic basket. 
And he goes to him and he's like, well, okay, what's what's this yoga stuff? I mean, in the 1950s, even into the 60s, I don't think the average American had any idea what yoga was. I have nothing but respect for his friend because his answer is spot on. He's like, look, if you really want to know what yoga is all about, go to India and talk to the folks over there. It's part of their religion. And that's, you know, the actual correct answer. And he said, but as far as I know, I think what you're going to have to do is kind of move into an ashram. And he's like, A, what's an ashram? And B, uh, for how long? And he's like, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years? And of course, you know, Robert Monroe's like, that's not going to happen. I'm a businessman who runs radio stations and has a business and I have a family and that's just not going to work. So he says, well, that's that's neat that apparently some other folks are having the same thing, but I guess I'm going to go on my own here. And he That's does. just too much work. I can't do it. It's not going to happen. He's, he seems slightly ahead of his time because he really identifies his own bias here. He's like, I'm a man of the West. My, I was just thinking that. I was yeah. like, that's a really American, like, well, can't do that. So I'm going to do it myself. Well, and he, and he names it. He's he's aware of it. He's He recognizes that he's having this experience, but that he can't pretend to take someone else's cultural context for it. And he also doesn't have, you know, he's given a suggestion of what to do. And he's like, well, that doesn't really work for my responsibilities, you know, as they are constructed here in America. And so he's like, yeah, I mean, like, what else can I do? I'm just going to kind of go forward with it. And again, at this point, it's probably the 1960s. And I don't still don't think much of mainstream America is really going on about out-of-body experiences or astral travel or yoga for that matter, really. I mean, it's People are kind of starting to understand what yoga is. If you're in some of the more fringy environments, if you're with the theosophists, for example, or if you're hanging out in some of the new religious movements in America, you're probably hearing about it. But I think middle America still is pretty unaware of all this. Don't you think? Yeah, I would definitely say that it wasn't until later 60s and 70s where it was really more mainstream. Right. And, you know, again depending on what circles you're kind of moving in. I'm sure if you're hanging out with a hippie commune somewhere, you might be talking about this kind of thing. But I think a businessman from Kentucky isn't necessarily moving in those circles, or at least Robert Monroe didn't seem to be. So he's just kind of doing it on his own. He's just kind of doing his own experiences and experiments without about body experiences. But he also has a research and development department in his business that he can also kind of harness to help him investigate some of these things. And so kind of from what I understand, a little bit on the sly, they're trying to figure out, is there any technology that could be harnessed to help with this? And so they come up with audio tapes that help people relax. And maybe there's some things, too, that you can do for out-of-body experiences. Well, he ends Yeah, up, that's really interesting. He ends up publishing his book. And Journeys Out of the Body is published in the 70s. Hold on. Looking it up now. Specifically, uh, the first edition of Out of of Journeys Out of the Body is actually published in 1971. So hmm. he's been working at this for a decade at this point before he goes ahead and just becomes public with it. And he mentions in the foreword of his book that he's really nervous. I have a later edition that he's really nervous when it first comes out. Yeah, I mean, he's not a young man. This isn't like some 20-something mm -mm. guy who's doing this. He's I can see where he would be nervous because not only you're kind of career switching or you know, you're going from a straight-laced businessman to now talking about 
things in the psychic realm. So that's pretty interesting. He didn't give up his businessman thing. That's the thing is he's handling investors' money. And here he is putting out this stuff that could really make people question his sanity. But the funny thing is, is that apparently all the people he worked with were nothing but supportive. And they were just like, oh, that's interesting. He talks about one of his uh, his business partners is like, you know, my wife's a little psychic. I, re- I always ask her uh, opinion before I buy a stock, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and I think because uh, the person I'm going to talk about and the things I'm going to talk about are happening kind of concurrently. So it seems like one of those things where the spark gets lit in different places and then it all kind of comes together as a movement. And I think there's even some crossroads. And the thing I'm going to talk about a little later, we're going to talk about kind of where this takes a turn for the, what's the right word? What's the right adjective? What is going to take a turn towards the more cloaking dagger? Yeah, yeah, about that. And he has his meetup with that kind of thing. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about what Robert Monroe says in his book, although it's... I suggest it. Here's the interesting thing, though, and this is going to kind of be foreshadowing for where I'm going later. He maps out all of his experiences first, and it's actually a little frustrating because I bought this book as a how-to guide. Like, I want to actually project. Remember, 2019, that's what I was looking for. And he does eventually get to that, and it's a little vague, but it's in the last two chapters. But first, he kind of lays out all of his experiences first. With also a little bit of caution, and a couple of cautions that he mentions are interesting. One is is that once the this is this is I'm, I'm paraphrasing him, but this is his ideas that once this door is opened, you can't close it. Once you decide to get into astral projection, it's kind of something that you'll find yourself doing. It's like a gang, man. <laughs> Apparently. And then the second thing is, is that the astral world is not an uninhabited one, according to Mr. Monroe, that it's not just you and the starry. So he's going down different planes, different. Mm -hmm. Okay. He meets entities and he talks about them. My favorite thing is, is that he'll, he'll describe things and be like, it's nothing at all like angels. And then he'll describe something that sounds exactly like angels. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, how is that not like angels? But hey, whatever you say, buddy. He he talks about interactions with other entities. And that's the interesting thing that he kind of is like, you know, be aware that when you're out there journeying, it's not a it's not a road without risks. He doesn't get histrionic about it, but he really does paint a convincing picture that if you want to get into this astral projection thing, that maybe there are, you know, it's not all flowers and puppy dogs and light. There might be some things to be aware of and be aware of. And then it's basically a psychic gang, Eric. You just keep saying this and I'm thinking it's basically a psychic gang. Maybe so. But in, in the end, after all that, after he kind of paints that whole picture, then he gives some ideas or it's not exactly a step by step, but it's sort of like a here's a vague outline about how I ended up doing it. Maybe you can try it, too. And I haven't tried it yet because I'm not sure I'm ready for that level of commitment yet. There's a, there's actually busy. quite a few books about that now, but um, one I had kind of read for this was called Out of Body Experiences, a handbook by Janet Lee Mitchell. So maybe <laughs> he's your gateway and then you'll find one's a little more step-by-step. I got enough right on my plate right now, to be perfectly honest. So uh, no astral projection for you. can't join the gang yet. You got a lot to- I got a lot going uh, on. Yeah. All right. All right. So that's that's Robert Monroe. 
You have a fellow who is actually a contemporary of Monroe? Uh, he was born in 33, so a little bit younger, but basically doing astral projection things around the same time. <laughs> and, and Eric, you were going to talk about this because he relates right away to what's called the Stargate, Project Stargate. Mm-hmm. And you said you were going to talk a little bit about it, but essentially <laughs> um, we can both do it. In 1995, the U.S. military publicly revealed something called Project Stargate, and then they shut it down. Um, It had been going for 20 years. So they're like, oh, hey, we've been doing this thing we weren't telling you about, but we're not doing it anymore as of today. The, The program used remote viewing, which is basically psychic spying. So it's the controlled out of body experiences that we told you about. Astral projection, you know, without the cool other realms, boring astral projection. And and indeed, actually, I have an account of one person who was involved in Project Stargate, and he basically says he was bored. (laughs) And I'll read you a quote a little later of like how he was not impressed with doing this. But the reason they do this. hmm? mm -hmm. Sorry. Oh, that's. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't interrupt. I mean, I, I was just thinking if you really want to. I'm just making a suggestion to listeners here. John Ronson who's one of my favorite authors, absolutely hilarious dude, uh, wrote a book called Men Who Stare at Goats. If you ever watched the movie, which I don't really suggest, so with George Clooney, it's, I guess it's fine. I would give it two stars out of five. But the book is not that. The book is nonfiction, and it's him actually doing investigative journalism, such as it is, about the Stargate project. But he's hilarious and, you know, dry and dry and British when he's doing it. And so if you really want to get into this deep, um, I suggest his book. He's a skeptic. Do be aware of that. But he's hilarious in his details. Or you can read accounts by people who were involved. So there's there's quite a few. I'm going to read you a little bit. This is a man called Ingo Swan who had he's kind of one of the fathers of remote viewing in this way. And what he says is this, he's talking about the project with the CIA because it was CIA funded and it goes into the army. And this is what he says. The purpose of the small project was to discover one ESP phenomenon that was capable of being reproduced at will. This was the kind of experiment notoriously missing in parapsychology, but in which I had been somewhat successful earlier. And so he says this and he said, that he got dragged into realms of often idiotic secrecy, into endless security checks, conducive of paranoia, into all kinds of science fiction dreamworks, into intelligence intrigues whose various formats were sometimes like toilet drains, and into quite nervous military and political ramifications. And basically, he talks about it as though they were making him be a cog. He actually uses the word computer chip. So he said, the subject is something like a computer chip being tested to see if it can perform in the ways wanted. If the chip doesn't perform in the ways wanted, then it is tossed aside into a big pile of anonymous chips that have likewise failed. So even though he was pretty successful at it, I think he says at one point he had a 65%. He's bored. He's not a trained monkey. And that's how it's feeling doing this project with the military, Um, which you can imagine like being a psychic and then working in the military within those confines must be pretty hilarious at the same time, but pretty awful for the psychic. So the reason that they do this is that in 1972, the CIA had heard concerning reports that the Soviet Union was involved in psychotronics. And psychotronics can just mean parapsychology. But in this case, it was specific to using psychic phenomenon and pseudoscience That's for military application. Our band name is Psychotronics. Psychotronics. Yep, without doubt. Can we call it Psychotronic Rejects? 
if you like. I mean, that's a different <laughs> band. I feel like that's like a, a that's like a cyberpunk band, whereas Psychotronics is seventies electro pop. Okay, well, maybe like we'll have apples. like a side project. Is that maybe. okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, uh, that's my side project. <laughs> Psychotronic rejects. Uh, you guys vote. Is it just psychotronics or psychotronic rejects? However, you remember this is during the Cold War when this psychotronics is happening. And if the Soviets are doing it, America had to do it and had to do it more. And so the CIA wanted to figure out what exactly was going on with psychotronics and if it was a real threat. So they contacted parapsychologists Hal Pudoff, who was a Scientologist, you might hear, although the fact that he and Ingo Swan were both Scientologists, they said didn't have anything to do with this. I'll let y'all research that if you want to. I'm not touching Scientology with a 10-foot pole. And his colleague, Russell Targ, of the Stanford Research Institute of Remote Viewing, to look for repeatable psychic phenomenon that might be useful to the military. Targ and Putoff had been working with a psychic named Ingo Swan. Together, they three developed what was called a perceptual channel across kilometer distances, or the ability to witness objects, people, and events at a distance. So remote viewing. This would eventually lead to the formation of Project Stargate. They are said to have done all sorts of things. They were able to identify spies. They were identifying weapons. They were doing all of these things. Swan says at some point that he gets pretty bored because he's one of the remote viewers early on. And that he wants to try to mix it up by trying to do remote viewing to planets. And this is what eventually gets a little messy. It's one of the reasons why by 1995, he's no longer doing it because he's doing these side projects. But it's also why um, he ends up, as Eric is kind of talking about that little nefarious dark side, he says he's getting followed by men in black. So it's <laughs> like they said that, you know, this project goes on for 20 years with 20 psychics. Some of them actually ended up with mental problems from doing it. If you can imagine being asked to remote view over and over. Some of them, like Swan himself, became obsessed with aliens and other worlds. And there was a $20 million budget for this thing, which uh, by military budget, that's not exactly huge, is it? The the building and grounds for the Stargate project were described by everyone, including the Wikipedia page. But John Ronson was talking about basically being a abandoned building for the most part. That's my words. On the edge of Fort Meade. This was in Maryland. Why is it always? Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's Maryland again. Based on everything describing the program that I read, you're wondering, really? Because you have like this building on an existent base. It's not state-of-the-art. It's, you know... Eric, it's the military. A toilet seat costs half a million dollars. <laughs> I suppose so. They must have some darn good toilet seats. So maybe Well, that's I a- mean, a million dollars a year, because it was 20 years. Was it 20 million per year? I think it was 20 million altogether. Okay. And that's the total project for, for 20 years. I'll have to look at it. But yeah, it might be. But, well, it makes a little more sense when you're describing where it was. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I've driven by or I drive you, by. You have family around there. Yeah, it's, it's an exit on your way to the airport from Baltimore. Ah, now all three men that I mentioned earlier are interesting, but Swan easily stands in a category of his own. He's born in Telluride, Colorado, in 1933, and he reports that he had his first 
out-of-body experience at the age of three, so in 1936. He says that he was under anesthesia and he was having a tonsillectomy and he was floating above and able to watch the doctors as they operated on him. The thing is, is that after the surgery, he was able to talk to the doctors and they confirmed what he had seen. But he's three years old. (laughs) So this is a first time I'm kind of like, well, how much of a surgery could a three-year-old describe? Um, You know, did they cut you cut me open? Yes, I did. So I'm a little skeptical (laughs) on this one. But he said that he'd had others and he was a naturally psychic child. But that there were events that happened that staunched this until he was much older. He's known to have had a huge influence on parapsychology in general. And he was a real Renaissance man, not just of the paranormal. Actually, I first heard of Ingo Swan when I was with Eric. We were at the Visionary Arts Museum in Baltimore, and he is an artist. And his works were amazing. I went and looked him up when I came home. And I was really surprised that he had this relationship to Project Stargate and all of these things because he was actually quite the accomplished artist. I don't know if you remember that time when we saw those. Oh, I remember that time. I don't remember his particular work, but I... I'm we'll go. Like, I'm coming up to see you in a few weeks, so we'll go. Yeah, yeah. But um, I can't believe that you're surprised by this, though. Like, for goodness sakes. <laughs> well, he so he again, he's this Renaissance man. He develops the field of remote viewing. He said to have visited other planets and extraterrestrials. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's a teacher. At one point, he was a Scientologist, but he leaves Scientology. And he writes these books, and you can get them. I've been reading a couple of them. Uh, Some of them can be a little hard to get a hold of. But if you have a subscription to Scribd, you are scribed, depending on how you would like to pronounce it, but I believe it's Scribd. Um, They are mostly on there. So I highly recommend that because the one that I've been reading was $153. (laughs) So if I wanted to buy it for resurrecting the mysterious, Um, but my favorite particular, I've only, you know, delved into two, but my favorite title is the one I'm reading right now. And it is called penetration, the question of extraterrestrial and human telepathy. We got this is a family podcast, Becca. (laughs) So, um, and then actually like one of the first things he gives eight definitions of the word penetration. (laughs) I can't. And you're like, I can't believe this guy's in the visionary art museum. This is par for the course is all I'm saying. Well, and in this book, he does talk a little bit about the dark side of the remote viewing. Mm. He talks about that these people are following him. So remember, he went and saw other planets. He saw extraterrestrials. And he believes that people wanted to stop him, which is odd, because I think that you kind of talked about that, that someone wanted to stop him. And he describes in penetration, this shouldn't really surprise anyone. It is a family podcast. I'm so sorry that he is in Los Angeles and he is in a supermarket where he encounters a sexy alien lady, but she looks like a human in hot pants and yellow polka dot halter top, huge platform shoes and 
big artichokes that she's holding for some reason. She's going through the artichokes. And he describes her in some great detail about how sexy this alien is. And when he gets next to her, because he too wants some artichokes. I don't know if that's a euphemism or not. But he... um he realizes the hair stands up on his arms and he realizes she's an alien and the men in black find him and they warn him that she's dangerous. So it's a really entertaining book. Um, <laughs> she, that alien's really not laying low, you know? <laughs> no, exactly. She's walking around in hot pants and a itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot halter top, pink and yellow. And waving artichokes about like one does. Yeah. So, I don't know, I think she was just fondling them. I'm really not sure where he was going with that, but it, it's an interesting, you know, the gang. He got in and you can't get out. <laughs> it sounds the opposite. It sounds like they were trying to push him out, actually. Or, no, no, they're telling him, like, she's dangerous. She's dangerous. Okay. Like, <laughs> Shut it up, buddy. What's his name, Inigo Montoya? Yeah, it's Ingo Swan, and actually, Swan. he has so much that he's written that we will probably do a whole um, other podcast, maybe <laughs> with him and Yuri Geller, because they both worked on. I don't know if you know who Yuri Geller is, folks, but he was really popular in the seventies and eighties for bending spoons with his mind. That was his thing. That seems like, and I remember, I remember watching this. I think when in search of or something like that in the seventies, and I. Remember thinking as superpowers go, that's got to be one of the most useless ones there is. Eric, I am not even going to pretend I didn't try this a lot <laughs> in my lifetime. <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't try it. I'm just saying as superpowers go, it's pretty lame. I'm doing it right now. Did, no, did I, you I ever, tried it. Did you ever no, bend the spoon? No, I think I did, but it was like, because I pushed it, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm trying so hard because um, I pushed it. But yeah, that was uh, that had an influence on me. So, tell us more about the dark side. Oh yeah, so um, other than ruining your mother's best spoons, right? Well, my mother didn't have best spoons. <laughs> she there was this store called Shockets, and they used to have a bin the size of like a single. Eric, bed. no spoon stories. Go go go. Full of, <laughs> full of aluminum flatware. Anyway, I'm just saying. It was Yuri Geller would have had a field day in that place. Anyhow, look, this whole thing really could go. I mentioned Stranger Things before. It goes in a Stranger Things kind of direction. At least if we are to believe Nick Ripatrizone, and if I'm saying your name wrong, sir, I apologize. And please do at us and, you know, correct me because uh, I don't want to butcher people's names. But he wrote a article for medium.com called The Hades Environment. And if you're into that kind of x file kind of thing and remote viewing is your jam, uh, you might want to check out this article called The Hades Environment. And in it, he talks about maybe this Stargate project wasn't as unsuccessful as they would like us to believe it was. And that, in fact, to use uh, Robert Monroe's verbiage, maybe the Soviets and the Americans opened a couple of doors they couldn't close. And that what ends up happening, or what he seems to allude to, is, is that, that sexy aliens come out. Uh, well, yeah, there you go. Right. That well, at least they're dangerous. Right. Dangerous alien artichoke aliens. There's another band name. Where I'm skeptical and where I am believing in this is all over the map on this one. I have to admit. Ask me if I believe in astral projection or in out of body experiences. Sure. 
you know, as a, as a spiritual person, whatever that means, as a religious person, I do cop to that. I do believe that there is, you know, life after death or outside of the body. So that's not too far outside of my particular wavelength or my worldview. But do I think people can make it happen or do I think that they're, you know, remote viewing or remote spying is a thing? I have no idea. But here's where he goes. He says that it was too successful. They shut it down and then they sent out a complex psyop to discredit it, to try to like keep people from going any further. And he writes in his medium.com article, quote, government programs into astral projection went dark around that time. He's talking about 1995. There were no more leaks in the press or grumbling acknowledgement by officials about astral studies. In fact, press attention to astral projection abruptly dried up. He then goes on to talk a little bit more about some unsavory connections that some of his research goes to, but then well, it's he, definitely not artichokes because those are savory. That's true. No, <laughs> Charles <laughs> Charles Manson gets pulled into this. Oh my! <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Read the article. It's whether you believe it or not, it's an interesting read. Evidence suggests, I'm I'm quoting the author again, evidence suggests the government still explores astral research from time to time, though in a post-Soviet era, their purpose is unclear, whether to find a way back in or keep something out. Only four or five copies of the 1973 astral cassette tapes are known to exist today. One reporter in the early 1980s became aware of complaints Combs city directories and business bureaus and used certified mail to search for the people behind the Beverly Hills-based team that created these tapes said to unleash monsters. They were never found. Hmm. And that's the end of the article from Nick Rippetrazone. Again, check out the article on your own if that's your cup of tea. But it certainly does seem to tell a different story than the official one. That's the Hades environment. because the So it's either that either monsters, artichokes, aliens, men in black, or was it a 20-year waste of money? You know, this is Jacklip Carnival. You decide. Well, Wado, everyone, for listening, and we hope you'll tune back in in the next couple weeks. Take care, folks. Jackalope Carnival! We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you what? a Merry Christmas. Hold on, I'm looking up his I'm looking up the date that he was born. Look nineteen thirteen. Is that right? That's my guess. Check it out. Did you remotely view this? No. Do 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 Robert Monroe. I'm Dr. Marvin Monroe. Robert. Uh, not bad. 1915. Ah, well, I tried. Same year as my pop. Uh, as a matter of fact, okay, ready? Here we go.
So he wrote it in the 80s, and he dies in... Did you hear that? Yep. I did. Darn it. The thunder. Is that thunder? 